So tonight we're talking about, um, we're really continuing our journey through Genesis. And uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about these four words up here. How about let's all say them together. Ready, go. In the beginning, God. You can take that phrase in two ways, and primarily we mean it the second way I'm about to tell you. First, the obvious uh, literal way is that there was a beginning in the universe, and that beginning was affected by God. There is no beginning apart from God's activity. But we've been focusing on taking it another way. That is, in Genesis, we find all the beginnings of every truth, every major truth in the Bible begins in Genesis. And so we, uh, we've used the illustration before. You probably remember this, that Genesis is the seed plot, the garden bed of revelation for the entire Bible. And we may not be uh, so clear what seed that is in Genesis, but as we track it through the divine revelation, through the, um, the books of the Bible, 66 books, uh, we begin to get more clear, more clear. Especially with the beginning of the Gospels, a lot of things become clear about the Old Testament. The epistles, things become more clear. And then in Revelation, uh, we've got the fruit of that seed that was sown in Genesis. And so we've been doing this um, for the last number of weeks here. If you've been here, uh, you've seen the seed of the tree of life. Apparently, the tree of life is just a mystical tree that God wanted man, for some reason, to eat. When we come to the New Testament, we find out the tree of life is? Christ. tree of life is Christ. Shocking revelation, especially if you're a Jew, that someone's going to say, man, this tree is Jesus Christ, the embodiment of all that God is, all that God has, and you can receive it by eating. Okay, we saw the river of water of life. What's that a seed of? The Spirit. Shocking revelation. But once you read John 7, 38 and 39, you realize out of our innermost being flows rivers of living water. He said that about the Spirit. This he said concerning the Spirit. So what we've been doing is we've been zooming out from Genesis and collecting verses throughout the Bible, putting them back together and seeing a a composite picture, really, of God's eternal purpose. And so tonight we're going to be zooming out on the story of the ark. And, you know, most people, when they think of the ark, you know what they think of? What do they think of? The flood, right? When you think of Noah, I said the ark. When you think of Noah, I mean, for sure, everyone thinks of Noah and the flood. And there's children's songs about this, right? Anybody know any? Anybody want to sing one? No? Okay. I don't know any, but I know they're, they're, they're out there. Everyone thinks of Noah and the ark, right? And you got the little cartoony picture. You know, actually, if you Google search Noah and the ark, you're going to find a lot of cartoony pictures and Google images of Noah and these, like, giraffe heads sticking out of the top of the ark, you know, and an elephant trunk coming out. And that's the, that's the understanding of what Noah's ark is all about. It's a kid's story, right? Yeah. No. No, <laughs> no it's not a kid's story. It is a significant revelation. And when you, actually, this is incredible to me. You know, we're ending this whole semester on Genesis 10. This is pretty much the last message. We're going to hit baptism next week, but really just some wrap-up stuff. We're ending with Noah. And out of the first 10 chapters of Genesis, Noah's story occupies chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 10 really is a is a, is a kind of coming out of, of that story. So 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5 of the 10 chapters is focused on Noah's experience. Okay, there is life after the flood. 
And that's what we're looking at tonight. There's life. Noah's story continues after the flood. And that story is a blueprint, what we're going to see tonight, for our experience of the church life and the kingdom. Noah's story is a blueprint for our experience of the church life and the kingdom. So with that in view, um, let's read the title all together. Ready, set, go. A scene of the church life and a shadow of the kingdom. Okay, I actually wanted to read one one other quote here before. This is not on your outline, but this is a quote from Augustine, Saint Augustine. A lot of people think it's August, Augustine, but it's uh, probably Augustine. And this is what he said. He died around. He was around in 400 A.D. And he's you know really people say he made Western theology what it is. And he's a big guy. This is what he said. The New Testament lies concealed in the Old. The New Testament lies concealed in the Old. And the Old lies revealed in the New. The Old Testament lies concealed in the Old. The New Testament lies concealed in the Old. And the Old Testament lies revealed in the New. Concealed, revealed. So when we're looking at the stories in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis, you know what we're looking at? The New Testament, concealed. So it takes light, it takes revelation, it takes a spirit of wisdom and revelation, it takes our mind to be opened, to understand the scriptures, and then all of a sudden, when that happens, we go, this is the New Testament. Yeah. The story of the ark is about the New Testament. Did you ever realize that? And then when we read the New Testament, a lot of times, of course, very explicitly, those writers quote verses, but oftentimes even they don't quote verses explicitly, and they make connections that the Old Testament doesn't come out and say, and we realize, wow, the Passover was Christ. The rock was Christ. The water in Egypt, the Red Sea, that was baptism? Where does that come from? Divine revelation. So remember these two words, concealed and revealed. Um, Someone else put it one way. The Old Testament is contained, or the New Testament is contained in the Old. The Old Testament is explained in the New. So either concealed, revealed, contained, explained. Four words, you have the entire connection of the entire Bible. Of course, you've got to figure out what that means. How is it concealed? How is it revealed? Okay, let me read one more. This is a, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but I kind of wanted to uh, lay some foundations for what we've been doing all semester. This, this quote is incredible. This is by Louis Burkhoff. The more perfect revelation of the New Testament illuminates the pages of the Old. Isn't that good? The more perfect revelation of the New Testament illumines the pages of the Old. Sometimes New Testament writers furnish explicit and striking explanations of Old Testament passages and reveal depths that might easily have escaped the interpreter. The Word of God is an organic production, and consequently the the separate books that constitute it are organically related to one another. Okay, this this is incredible. Then he says, uh, okay, see, okay, he says, uh, the consequences that are deduced from Scripture by unavoidable inference, in other words, you know, 1 Peter 3 says that the story of the flood is baptism. Right. So, that, you know, it's deduced by Scripture, by unavoidable inference, and more largely still, 
The consequences that are deduced from a comparison of the various scripture statements among themselves were foreseen by infinite wisdom. Isn't that good? Therefore, not only the express statements of Scripture, but its implications as well must be regarded as the Word of God. So tonight, we're going to look at uh, the implications of Noah's life after the flood. And hopefully by the end, you're going to, you're going to agree and be impressed uh, that what happened after the flood was a picture of a group of people practicing the church life and practicing the kingdom of God. Yeah. Okay, so let's start out with in resurrection. Let's read this verse, Genesis 8, 4, 1, 2, 3, go. Okay, so seventh month, 17th day of the month, real quick. Uh, when you fast forward, um, in Exodus, the Passover was instituted on the seventh month, on the 14th day of the month. When Christ was crucified, he was crucified on... Passover, Passover as the reality of the, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God. Three days later, he resurrected on the 17th day of the month. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? So all of a sudden, in Noah's Ark, of course the Ark stayed up there for a little bit longer before they got out, but the Ark, it, it made this journey through God's judgment, and it rested in the mountaintops on the exact same day a few thousand years later, about just over 2,000 years later or so, or 3,000, Christ resurrected the exact same day. The ark landed in the mountains. Christ arose from the dead and landed in the heavens. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Okay. Oh, this is so good. Next point. Let's read this and the verse all together. One, two, three. In Christ. Oh, we've got to do that again. In Christ. Okay, verse. 1 Corinthians one thirty. Go. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay, but of him you are in. Isn't that awesome? Of God we're in. We're in Christ. Amen. So when the ark passed through God's judgment on the flood, guess what? People were in it. People were in it. People were inside the ark. And when the ark landed on the mountain, guess what? Those people were in it. And when we look at the New Testament, you know, this is, this is incredible. Apparently, when you read the Gospels, three men died at Calvary. Apparently, three men died on Calvary. Actually, hundreds of millions of men died on Calvary. Wow. All the future believers of Christ were there in Christ. And so later in the New Testament, Paul tells us, we were crucified with Christ. Amen. It takes spiritual revelation. Paul saw it. Wow. There were three crosses. But there was millions, hundreds of millions of people there in God's eyes inside of Christ. Just like Noah's family was inside the ark and never got wet. They were in the ark for more than a year, a year and 11 days. They didn't get wet at all. When we were in Christ on the cross, we didn't get judged at all. Actually, God poured out his judgment on Christ. And because we were in Christ, we just passed through God's judgment and enjoyed God's salvation. And then when Christ ascended to the heavens, guess what? 
We're still in Christ. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.5, we were made alive with Christ, and we were raised up together with Christ, and we were seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. Can we say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Wow. So the beginning of our church life, and actually our whole entire experience in the church, depends on a revelation that our our being, our existence, everything about us needs to be seen as being in Christ. And where is Christ today? He's in resurrection. Okay, um, we can skip this next part. I just wanted to put it down there. Um, By faith and baptism, that's how we got into Christ. We believed ourselves into Christ, and we were baptized into Christ. So the way you got in Christ, yeah, it was God's doing, but it was through faith and through baptism you got put into Christ. Okay, how do we experience this? Let's read the next point in the next two verses in spirit. In spirit. Second Timothy four twenty two. Go. Grace be with you. First Corinthians six seventeen. Go. Okay, these two verses show us that where is the Lord? He's He's with our spirit. And actually, we have been so joined and united to him that we are one spirit with the Lord. The Lord of the universe, the Lord of everything, we are one with him. And so practically, to experience the church life, we have to learn to be in our spirit. The reality of the church life, the practicality of the church life, the enjoyment of the church life, the enjoyment of Christ, it's all in our spirit. So if you don't know you have a spirit, You have no access. You have no entry point into the riches God wants to give us. You You have no doorway to experience a church life. That's why so many people, when they find out they have a spirit, they're blown away. Right. They're blown away because they realize we have access into God's salvation. We have access to the church life. The church life is real to us. It's practical to us when we learn how to exercise and stay in our spirit. Amen. It's so awesome. Okay, let's go on to this next point. Uh, So when I say let's read the point, that means read read the... uh, There's no point there. I don't know if you noticed. That means read the bold, and then we'll read the verses. So let's read this next point. Ready, set, go. Society with a new living. Romans 6, 4, go. We have been buried therefore through the baptism into his death. Amen. For just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we might walk in newness of life. Ephesians 4, 22-24, ready, set, go. That you put off as regards Okay, so if you think of Noah's life, of course, this doesn't explicitly mention Noah, but it mentions baptism, which we know happened in typology through the flood and people passing through that flood. Uh, but Romans 6, 4 says, after baptism, you know what there is? 
There's newness of life. And Paul tells us to put off the old man, which he says is the former manner of life. That's the collective living of the old man. The collective living of that old society needs to be put off. And actually, in Romans 6, 6, right after this, Paul tells us, actually, that old man was put off, in fact, through baptism. And so when you think of Noah... You know, Noah had a hard life for 120 years. We covered this last, last week, remember, with Chris. Uh, building for 120 years, heralding for 120 years, enduring probably very uh, real criticism because it, it had never rained. And remember, Chris, he was building a football field and a half-length boat, and it had never rained, and he was building it on the land. So he endured a lot of criticism, and he, you know, uh, in in college, we probably all can exp- uh, identify with that, right? Anybody uh, identify with some criticism for trying to live for Christ? Anybody ever feel like you're being ridiculed for not going to a party? For sure. I mean, if you're if you're living Christ, you should. That's part of the normal thing. And all, you know, probably there was even temptations for Noah. You know, to stop working, to just put the hammer down, just to, just to enjoy society at large. I mean, on the one hand, it was a violent time, but on the other hand, it sounded like society was thriving. Building, planning, marrying, eating, drinking. It sounded like people were having a great time. And Noah's there hammering away, and all he sees is people eating, drinking, marrying. I mean, having a good old time, not helping him build the ark. So temptation and uh, frustration and ridicule surrounded Noah for 120 years. But when he passed through the flood, guess what? None of that was there anymore. All the, all the obstacles, all the uh, temptation, all the frustration was gone. There was a new society. There was only eight people who emerged from that situation. And so when we are baptized, we enter into a new society. And although that has happened once for all, Paul tells us every day we have to exercise to put off our old man and put on the new man. What that means is put off your old way of living and identify yourself and put yourself into the church life. So practically, what does that mean? Practically... The church life is a meeting life. And so the way you put off your old manner of life, if it still seems very real and tangible and very tempting uh, and hard, the way you put that off and get saved is by getting a new society. That's as practical as salvation get a new society. And that society gathers. The church gathers. We gather Thursday night. Uh, we gather all throughout the week. We Actually, we should be gathering every day of the week. Uh, not in huge gatherings, but small twos and threes, and we'll get to that in a second. And I need to hurry. Okay, brought back to God's original intention. We're going to skip that. That makes the connection that uh, Genesis 126 is realized in the church life. You can look at the verses later. Offering sacrifices to God. I think we're going to skip this. Um, in the church, we're offering Christ to God. If you don't know what that means, sounds like a great appointment for next week. You can talk to someone about it. Enjoying God's covenant. Okay, let's read the verses in Isaiah 54, 7 through 10. Ready, set, go. 
I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In a flood of wrath I hid myself for a moment, but with eternal loving kindness I will have mercy on you, says Jehovah your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not overflow the earth ever again. So I have sworn not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not depart from you, and my covenant of peace will not shake, says Jehovah, who has compassion on you. Isn't this an incredible verse? Did you know this verse was in the Bible? Isaiah refers to Noah's covenant. And Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53, which has got to be the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. It's the all-inclusive death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. After that, after, we, uh, after Christ has died for us, uh, shed his blood for us, there's a covenant that never again will God be angry with us. Can you believe that? The Bible says that. Never again will I be angry with you. I forsook you for a short moment. But with great compassion, I will gather you. Anyways, praise the Lord. We are the church of the covenant. Amen. We're living under the enjoyment and security of the covenant. God has covenanted with us that he will never destroy the earth. He will never uh, bring judgment, that kind of judgment on us ever again. And so, um, so we need to, if we want to enjoy the covenant, uh, you know what step one is? Very practical. If you want to enjoy the covenant, what's step one? First off, what is the covenant? Anybody know what the covenant is? I'm holding two big old covenants right here. Testament is the exact same word as covenant. Did you realize that? Testament means covenant. Testament does not mean testimony. If you've been thinking of that, you got it wrong. Testament does not mean testimony. It's a legal term for covenant. For a covenant agreement, a legal contract that's binding and that's got full legal force. And so if you want to enjoy God's covenant, which is a very good thing, you know what you need to do? Read your Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you won't know what's stipulated in the covenant. And you will be convinced by the devil, he'll be lying to you, that God actually is extremely angry with you. That God is judging you. That your situation is a consequence of, of anger from God. That's exactly what Job thought. And you'll be duped, you'll be miserable, you'll be unhappy, all because you never read the fine print. Which says it's never going to happen again. And so when we see, you know, anyways, Lord Jesus, there's so much here. You know, when Noah, when Noah, when, when Noah, you know, let's say a week after the flood, what did he do when, this, when the storm clouds started gathering again? Because from that point on, it rained again and again and again. So imagine you're Noah and the second storm starts brewing and the sky is black. And the lightning is just incessant. What do you do? Go find some wood and start trying to hammer that thing back together again? No. You're secure. You're not threatened. 
You have nothing to worry about because you know God has covenanted to you. Your salvation is eternally secure. And so that should release us from Satan's threats, from Satan's condemnation, from Satan's accusations. We are the church of the covenant and we have a verse of promise for any situation we're in. But to know it, we got to read it. Okay. Let's go on to the kingdom, and we're going to skip this next part. This basically tells you the relationship between the church and the kingdom. All right, let's read um, under a shadow of the kingdom. Let's read the reality of the kingdom as a living. Uh, Let's read Genesis. uh, Actually, we don't need to read it. I'll tell you the story. It's there for you to read later, but it might take a little longer. Genesis 9, everything's going good in the church. Everything's going good in the kingdom of God at that time. Noah has a huge failure. He gets drunk in his success. You know, he's probably probably pretty happy he made it through the flood. Plants a vineyard. I don't know how long that took, but eventually, you know, those, those grapes got really sweet and tender. And uh, he had some, some wine, and he got drunk, and he got naked in his tent. And there was, um, there was only four males around at that time. Noah and his three sons, and they had wives. And one of the sons went in there and saw it and went and exposed it, exposed that failure to the other two sons. The other two sons took a a blanket and walked backwards so they wouldn't see that and covered Noah. Okay. In, In Matthew 18, so Ham got a curse and Shem and Japheth got a blessing. In Matthew 18, we read of the exact same scenario. In Matthew 18, you can read it later. It's the exact same scenario. There's four people. There's a group of two and three. And there's a one who's had a a failure, who's sinning. And in Matthew, we see our proper action should be to come together uh, and try and recover this person. Cover their situation. You know, at first, it's you go to the one by yourself. Why is it you and one? Because one, at first, is the minimum number to keep it totally covered. Because when our failures are just publicized, it becomes very hard to live the church life together and live in the kingdom together. If one doesn't work, what do you do? Go tell everyone about it? You get two or three, and you start praying. Jesus, release this person from the sin. Jesus, bind the devil. Jesus, the concepts in the mind that it's impossible to return to the meetings because they've, they've blown it. Lord, bind that thought. And you pray for that person to be recovered. Okay, that, that failure is a test to us. And it's really interesting because the Bible doesn't focus so much on Noah's failure, which we would think, you know, hey, let's just, you know, yeah, he failed. Noah failed big time. But the Bible focuses on our reaction to failure around us. So others fail, other failures around us test to see whether we're living in the kingdom, whether we expose and talk about people, criticize people, oh, gossip about people. Hey, did you hear what's going on with Abishek these days? Or do we, with our companions, do we pray for the brother? Pray binding kingdom prayers to release our brother. Not to bind him, not to bind this guy, but to bind his situation so he can be recovered to the church life. And so it's incredible to me that the kingdom here presented in Genesis, and actually the church life, the kingdom and the church are both uh, illustrated through relationships. Isn't that interesting? The Bible has a lot to say doctrinally about the kingdom, 
but it illustrates the kingdom through relationships. And how we relate to others when others fail determines whether or not we are living in the kingdom. Okay, right before that, in Matthew 18, back in 18, the 2 and 3, uh, right before that, it says, um, whoever humbles himself or whoever is humbled like a little child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. The question is, how can we be humble? How can we be humble? Because when we're successful at being humble and we realize it, usually we're not humble anymore. <laughs> usually we're proud. Actually, if we're successful through our own attempts at humility, that just puffs ourselves up. And so it's God's sovereignty that we're humbled through failure. Actually, we first are Noah. God erodes our self-confidence through failure. And not just one failure, but repetitive failure. Until we, like Paul, say, I have no zero confidence in my flesh. If I get put alone in that situation, it's 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 been written before and it'll be written again 100% failure and so when we see a brother in that situation we don't criticize we don't publicize we don't expose we don't ridicule we say lord jesus who can i get with to pray for this brother who can i get with to recover this brother and so we're humbled i mean it's amazing god makes us noah first and then brings us with the group to another noah to recover that brother to the church life So there's no boasting, there's no success, there's just the church life maintained through groups of twos and threes being burdened for each other, being uh, being, uh, praying for each other and covering each other's failures so the church life and the kingdom life can go on. Isn't that so awesome? It's incredible. So if you don't have a two and three, you know, we've emphasized this for years, 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 uh, you know, to have a companion... Number one, because you know what? There are, there, you know, on this campus, there's hundreds and hundreds of hurting Christians who feel like they have no way to go on. And you probably know some of these Christians. You probably grew up with some of these Christians. And they, they're being lied to by the devil. They feel like their church life, their Christian life is done. They've blown it so hard that there's no recovery. If you have some companions, this person has hope. Yes. If you have some companions, this person can be recovered. Okay, if you have companions, one day you'll have a failure. And you'll think it's over. You'll think the road's come to an end. But if you have companions you're built up with, you've been praying with, uh, you've been pursuing the Lord with, you have hope. You have hope for your church life to be recovered. Anyways, um, I hope that impresses you all. Uh, The kingdom here is illustrated in relationships of twos and threes recovering a sinning brother back to the enjoyment of the kingdom life. Okay, we're going to end on this verse, uh, Revelation 22.1. Let's read the title, uh, the subtitle on the verse. Ready, set, go. Revelation 22.1 and go. Out of the of God and of the Lamb in the middle of 
Okay, so this, this is the highest supply to meet the highest demand. And if you look at the verses uh, under Matthew, the 10 points in Matthew, we're not going to cover it. Actually, if you read the entire book of Matthew, if you want to know about the kingdom, read the gospel of Matthew. And all of a sudden, you will be very exposed of your shortcomings in the kingdom. And you will realize how high of a requirement it is to live the kingdom. And you will wonder, Lord Jesus, how is this possible? This is impossible. But Revelation shows us a connection between the throne and the river. And this is what your reading is going to be about. So the throne and the river. The river is the spirit. It's the all-inclusive supply. It's the triune God. It's everything to you. And the throne is the highest demand. It's the righteous. It's God administrating, ruling over the entire universe. What could be a higher demand? What could be a higher higher court than God on the throne, putting demands on humanity? Well, if there was no river coming out of the throne, we have no hope. But if we learn how to drink the river, enjoy the river, we'll get brought right under the throne, and we'll be in perfect harmony with God's kingdom.